This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It is 5.07. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. First up, uh, the latest session of Parliament ended yesterday. So ordinarily, we would have Popit Popit Parliament here from Monday to Thursday. It being Friday, it being over, we thought it seemed like a good time to look back on what was actually a fairly eventful run of things. Yes, I think possibly one of the things that got the most conversation going um, was the generational endgame. Uh, so the Dewan Rakyat approved the control of tobacco products and smoking bill 2022 uh, to be referred to the Parliament's Special Select Committee, made up of government and opposition lawmakers. And according to Health Minister uh, Kairi Jamaluddin, um, they will be examining the enforcement aspect of the bill and suggest improvements for its second reading if necessary. The other big one, of course, was the anti-hopping bill, uh, the anti-party hopping bill, which was passed by a block vote, 209 MPs voting in favour of this. Um, it's actually one of the main stipulations, you may recall, of the MOU between the Prime Minister and the opposition MPs. Uh, there was also the anti-sexual harassment bill, very long awaited, also uh, heavily discussed, including on our show, actually. All of these things, if you want to uh, get a refresher, you can look on our site um, across the station, lots of coverage. But the legislation basically broadens the legal recourse for sexual harassment victims, um, providing them with a venue to file claims against perpetrators through a special tribunal. So Parliament wouldn't be Parliament, though, if there wasn't a hefty amount of controversy, of uh, arguing. So there was a fair amount of that as well. Yes, so let's see. Uh, just a quick run through of the, the the highlights or the lowlights, depending on how you look at it. On Tuesday, the Dewan Rakyat was in a bit of an uproar after Speaker Tan Sri Dato Azhar Azizan Harun decided to amend the block vote results of the motion to extend the enforcement of the SOSMA Act. Uh, so Azhar said that Pasisala MP Dato Sri Tajuddin Abdul Rahman uh, returned to vote on the motion on the 20th of July, even though he had served a two day suspension by Deputy Speaker Dato Rashid Hasnon earlier that day. Um, Azhar said he wasn't aware of Tajuddin's suspension as he was in a meeting and he hadn't been informed by Rashid or his officers about the incident. Went on to say that if he'd known, he wouldn't have allowed Tajuddin to enter the House to vote um, and said that he will use Standing Order 100 to amend the block vote results for the motion on the 20th of July to subtract the total of those voting in favour by one and increase the number of those absent by one. So, uh the, the responses to this saw a very strange alliance. I know that we see strange alliances happen in politics in general, but this one's odder than most because um, Tajuddin said he wasn't ejected, he left on his own and so on and so forth. But then you also have people like uh, Sagambut MP Hannah Yo, Kulai MP Tioni Ching, um, the DAP women that in another session were deemed disrespectful, I believe, um, to to Tajuddin, to the Pasisalak MP. Uh, anyway, they said that they actually agreed with him. So a, a lot of chaos there. Um, there was also the fact that the claims of the Sulu Sultanate mm -hmm. weren't allowed to be discussed in the hall because of worries of, um, you know, things around confidentiality, national security, things like that. So a lot happened uh, is the long and short of it. We'd like to hear from you. What stood out to you from the latest session of Parliament? Do you think it was a productive sitting? You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred. WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio after this. We'll be speaking with Malaba Mahabalakrishnan, parliamentary consultant and researcher. Keep it here on the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. 
Bigotry-Free Malaysia, BFM 89.9. It is 5.12. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn and Sharmila. And uh, we are looking back on this latest just recently concluded session of Parliament to look at the highs and lows and basically what they got done. So we'd like to hear from you. Uh, what stood out to you from the latest session of Parliament? Do you think it was a productive sitting? You can call us double seven double three two nine hundred. WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Speaking with us now on this is Maha Balakrishnan, Parliamentary Consultant and Researcher. Maha, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's start with what were your big takeaways from this session of Parliament? You know, I was actually rather encouraged by the net outcomes from this parliamentary meeting. I think overall we saw greater engagement between MPs and the government on legislation. Um, and, you know, the more that MPs actually use the procedures and platforms that are available in Parliament, uh, the stronger and more independent Parliament becomes. Um, but I think what we need to be mindful of is that We've seen a lot of positive developments, I think, uh, not just in this parliamentary meeting, but also in, in previous recent parliamentary meetings. And most of that has been a result of political dynamics. You know, with a weaker than normal executive, what happens is that MPs and civil society have been allowed to push back, right, and push into parliament and use it as a means of advocating better policies and laws. The, co the concern is that how do we protect that energy, you know, that assertiveness, that keenness that we've seen in the last few years, because the rules of parliament haven't changed, right? Uh, they haven't been improved to capture and concretize what we've been seeing these last few years. Uh, and I hope that that will be addressed and in, in soon. There were a number of bills that were passed this time, including the anti-party hopping bill, the anti-sexual harassment bill, the IPCC bill, and the flat 10% sales tax. What do you make of the manner in which the bills were debated and passed? Well, I think some of these bills, at least, and, and the process that they followed highlights and underscores what I, I said earlier about the net positives. So let's let's look at the positives first. Um Two stand out, obviously, from that list, the Constitutional Amendment Bill to introduce anti-party defection laws and also the anti-sexual harassment bill. Now, with the anti-defection laws, what was positive for parliamentary democracy as a whole, obviously, was that the proposals went before a select committee for review and amendment instead of simply being rushed through parliament, uh, where parties were forced by their whips to vote for or against uh, the amendments. Now, um, sending it to a select committee, uh, the benefit of that is that it allowed for some measure of uh, inclusion of input from other stakeholders and a more holistic and thorough debate uh, by the MPs. Of course, the process was not perfect. Uh, there was a veil of secrecy under which the committee operated and um, failure to share uh, draft laws that were being contemplated so that uh, they could invite wider feedback. Um, still, it was a small step forward. Now, the second bill that you mentioned, the anti-sexual harassment bill or the ASH bill, you know, kudos, kudos to the women's NGOs in Malaysia who've worked so long and hard on this, but specifically who banded together and actually mobilized a very strong campaign in the last few months to raise concerns regarding the bill and to push for improvements on the bill. They worked so effectively to engage with MPs and the Select Committee on uh, Women and Children's Affairs uh, and to get them, parliamentarians, to raise their concerns in parliament. Now, that bill was not sent to a select committee for formal review, uh, and I, I believe it ought to have been, but 
even in an unofficial capacity, the select committee under Datu Sri Azalina and uh, YB Henayu was able to assert its influence because they were able to use their power to convene, to bring together CSOs, ministry officials, and the attorney general to discuss their concerns and to discuss proposed improvements. So, you know, what we saw demonstrated there was the multitude of ways in which committees can be effective and can be influential. Um, of course, then contrasting this to the negatives, which is, of course, the IPCC bill, uh, you know, there's a key similarity between that bill and the other two that we mentioned. All of them direct uh, deal directly with uh, fundamental liberties and human rights yeah, in some form or another. Now, if only for that reason, there ought to have been longer deliberation of the IPCC bill uh, and, in fact, a reference to a select committee, if only to show that there was, in fact, acceptance among all key stakeholders for the design of the bill. But I don't think we can uh, put the blame solely um, or, or squarely on the shoulders of government on this. Uh, I also felt that um, it didn't come across that the MPs in this case who opposed the bill had worked together uh, collaboratively or had worked to mobilize civil society to push for improvements to the bill. We just need to contrast this experience with what happened with the IPCMC bill in 2019, just to see the difference. Uh, and again, of course, with the 10% um, tax levy, similar issues, yeah. Uh, it, it was, uh, there wasn't a sufficient debate on the bill, uh, and that is unfortunate because obviously it is going to impact uh, the average Malaysian uh, moving forward. So we're definitely going to get your take on the generational endgame bill, which has perhaps the snazziest name of them all or the snazziest right? nickname. Um, but before that, you were talking quite extensively about the select committee. Yes. And I was hoping to get your take or, or to understand more about what happens when a bill does go to a PSC. What is it meant to achieve? Well, it achieves... It, it, the purpose of select committee or sending a bill to a select committee achieves different objectives for different groups. Uh, the clearest uh, objective is that it allows for a more thorough and holistic uh, discussion of the bill, the details of the bill and all the policy rationales for the bill as well. Um, because what a PSC is empowered to do is to call people before them, right, or to call and ask for evidence uh, before them. And this would then be uh, listening to the people that are most affected or impacted by a bill, as well as experts, yeah, experts on the subject matter. Um, this is not something that Parliament can do when the bill stays on the floor of the House and goes through committee stage on the floor of the House. So, so that is one key advantage. But the other advantage is that you are putting together MPs, bipartisan MPs, multipartisan MPs from different groups into a room together, a quiet room out of the glare of publicity. Uh, and you can take the politics out of, of the discussion most, most of the times. And you can actually have a, a serious and, again, bipartisan, nonpartisan discussion about policy issues when they come up with their recommendations and, and uh, uh, proposals for amendment on bills. Now, in terms of what then happens, 
Uh, once a PSE reviews the bill, they come up with recommendations, they can make uh, proposals to amend the bill, and those proposals then get tabled before the House. And that is what the House then discusses and votes on. Now, just a final point and final advantage, and this is for the government of the day. I think in Malaysia, this, this appears to be a bit of a reluctance on the side of government to embrace this concept or this idea of sending a bill to a select committee. Now, it's, this is a very different attitude from what we see in uh, other countries right? Uh, in other countries, governments actually see the value of doing it, the political value even of doing it for themselves. Uh, in many countries, bills are, are, the default position is to send a bill into a select committee while the bill is progressing through parliament. But there are countries, the UK House of Commons being a good example, where the government now has almost a standing policy of sending a bill even in draft form before it is even tabled, right? What is the benefit to government for that if, if they were to do that? Well, if you send a bill into a select committee, let's say it's a controversial bill like this generation uh, and game bill, right? Now, a government of the day, instead of risking defeat because its own gov uh, government MPs may not support the bill, they are able to send it to a committee where the committee comes up with perhaps some uh, recommendations for, for improvement and for amendment. Uh, but then the bill that goes before the House after that, whether it's passed or not, the entire burden of the political burden uh, of bearing that loss does not fall on the government of the day anymore, right? And similarly with this bill, when a bill goes through a review before a committee, what is as important as the amendments that they propose are what they leave untouched. When a committee leaves something untouched, then uh, you know, the government can actually stand up and say, look, the, the committee, a bipartisan committee has okayed this. Um, so there are benefits to government of the day. And I'm, I'm really pleased that Clearly, the minister in this case recognized that. So the generational endgame bill, I think it's yes. time we bring that up, uh, was probably the most controversial of the sitting. Could you take yeah. us through what you observed about how it was discussed, um, as well as the outcome of it being delayed and, and being sent to a parliamentary yeah. select committee? Okay, so first off, I don't see it as a delay. I see it as an opportunity. Uh, for, for all the parties concerned, for the reasons I said earlier. Uh, and, you know, again, I'm very encouraged by how the minister and the MPs, the MPs on the on these committees, uh, conducted themselves on this. Um, I'm not going to comment on the obviously on the content or the policies objectives uh, underlying this bill, which are certainly polarizing. But I think what's important is that whichever way any of us lands on those issues, we should all be encouraged by the process uh, by which this this bill has been tabled. First off, we. We should remember, yeah, that uh, the minister actually did the right thing when he agreed with the request of YB Kelvin Yi last year, I believe it was, uh, to share the broad outline of the bill with the Committee on Health Science and Innovation. So there was already a, a sort of a pre-legislative consultation with the committee. Again, it wasn't perfect uh, because they weren't allowed to see the bill in draft form. They were only given the broad, uh, broad strokes of what it contained. Yeah, But it did mean that a committee of bipartisan MPs and heavyweight MPs uh, on that committee could deliberate the broad policy rationales, could consult experts, which they did, uh, and then give feedback to the ministry, which, as the minister has said, some of which were taken into account into the, the bill that was tabled. Now, once the bill was tabled, Obviously, it became uh, clear that uh, the policies and uh, provisions would be hugely polarizing. And it also became clear that further and wider engagement with different groups was necessary. Now, the fact that the minister acknowledged this and the fact that the uh, MPs from 
both sides, uh, some uh, publicly and others not, uh, encouraged the sending of this bill into a committee um, should actually be commended, I think, by all of us. Uh, and the committee has, of course, been given a very tight timeline. I'm not sure it's uh, one month is sufficient. Um, but uh, I, I think what we can hope to see coming out of this is uh, a bill with uh, uh, greater input, greater uh, understanding of or explanation of the issues, and hopefully with bipartisan MPs on the bill, hopefully for the government of the day at least, as I said earlier, they won't be faced bearing the brunt uh, of, of any criticisms that may eventually be leveled uh, their way. So briefly, what wasn't discussed in some ways made as many headlines as what was, because uh, the Sulu claims weren't permitted mm. to be discussed openly the day one, for instance. Um, how would you respond to the way in which it was handled? Well, it, it could have obviously been handled better. Uh, I think the danger facing the speaker here is that in making decisions to reject urgent motions on the reasons that he gives for them, um, he may stand the risk of coming across as protecting the government of the day or of speaking for them. Now, let's look at the reasons that the speaker gave uh, to reject this bill in particular, right? Uh, two reasons that he gave was, one was that uh, the answers that to the issues that were raised might touch on national security issues or state secrets. Uh, secondly, that it might give rise to subjudice because there are pending legal proceedings on this matter. The problem with that, the problem with him doing that off the bat was that it isn't actually for him to present those points in parliament. He cannot presume to know what the government would say in response to that motion. And, you know, it's certainly not his role to be the spokesperson for government. His role should only be whether to decide uh, whether that motion contains a defined matter of urgent public importance. And if it does, he should have allowed for that motion to be raised on the floor of the House. Now, if the government minister then stood up, right, when the motion was moved, if the government minister stood up and raised objections on those same principles, secrecy and subjudice, then the speaker could have made a ruling, right? He may, he may have come to the same decision, ultimately, to disallow the motion, but at least it would have been on the basis of a clear debate between the, the right parties, yeah? Uh, instead of what it may come across now as if, you know, the speaker preempted the issue or even worse that he may have protected the government on this. I'm not, I'm not clear why he chose to do that. Let's also look at the Speaker's justification on the amendment to the block vote on SOSMA, where Tajuddin's vote was retracted because he was apparently actually suspended. Uh, what are the usual mechanisms for an amendment like this? Well, there isn't a usual mechanism, I think, as, <laughs> as the Speaker himself actually pointed out on the 20th of July uh, on the first motion. And I think this this just underscores the uh, challenge that MPs and, and even the Speaker of the House is facing. Now, um, we need to be clear, this was a motion, uh, not a bill. Uh, and when there is a motion that the House has passed, there is a provision in the standing orders under Standing Order 36.3, which allows uh, the House to rescind a previous uh, decision it made on a motion. Now, um, that's, that was done in this case, right? Technically, at least it was done in this case. The uh, Home Minister presented that first motion to rescind the previous motion of March on the 20th of July, and then a week later, on the 26th of July, he presented a fresh motion to extend that provision uh, under SOSMA. Now, so on the face of it, it looks as if 
you know, all parties complied with the standing order. The difficulty is not so much in in what they did, but how little understanding everyone seemed to have about the process, which is a little alarming. Um, you know, this is this is the Malaysian Parliament. Uh, we've had a parliamentary democracy for sixty five years, and we're still at the stage where um, there seems to be a lack of clarity or understanding of basic procedures. Uh, there certainly is not enough um, uh, uh, collation of information, collection of reasonings, uh, rulings, etc. Um, and I think uh, all of this amplifies the necessity for, uh, I think, improved training uh, across the board and improved education about parliamentary procedures. Maha, we have uh, 45 seconds left with you, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> um, what, what can we look forward to in the next sitting of Parliament? What are you personally anticipating? Well, the anti-stalking laws have been presented. I certainly hope, again, it's an issue relating to fundamental liberties. So uh, I, there should be a thorough consultation process, if possible, uh, sending it again to select committee uh, for a short scrutiny. I, I think that is something that we should continue to practice and encourage the practice of. But I would just say uh, there are a couple of other things that happen in this parliament, uh, which I think are important, sort of, uh, uh, you know, off the grid, if you will. Um, we had the APPG on political financing submitting a bill on political financing, right, through, through the uh, chair of that uh, APPG. Uh, I'm part of that APPG, I should declare my interest. Um, but we, we also saw the setting up of a, MP caucus and multi-party democracy. So I think we should be paying attention to all these things uh, moving forward. The next session will, of course, be, sorry, the next meeting will, of course, be focused on the budget. Uh, but I think we should be pushing to see uh, that the objectives of these uh, other caucuses, et cetera, uh, are achieved. Um, and also, as I said at the very beginning, looking to see how we can concretize some clear amendments to the standing orders so that what we see happening now will follow through into the next uh, election. Thank you. Maha, thank you so much for speaking with us. That was Maha Balakrishnan, consultant and researcher weighing in on the latest very eventful uh, sitting of Parliament. Send us your thoughts and keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my, BFM 89.9, The Business Station.